0: For the Magical Mystery Tour here on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick.
1: Right now. Mine. Yes, on last night the Spirit told me to tell you, the Spirit told me to tell you to say these words, I am what I am.
2: With us today, we have Miles Shirts. Miles Shirts owns and manages Sky Meadow Retreat in the Northeast Kingdom, and you've also written a book. The book is called Beyond Perception, sold among other places at the Hunger Mountain Food Co-op. And the book begins describing my experience as a 19-year-old searching for meaning in life Mm -hmm. and finding my way serendipitously to a Buddhist monastery in Sri Lanka. So this is in the um, mid-70s when there was a lot of that going on, but the concept of meditation, the concepts of, you know, Eastern spirituality were fairly new. And, you know, my story is that I was not looking for anything like that. I just was really at a crisis of meaning in my life as a young man. I was in college and did not understand or couldn't make sense of kind of the path I was supposed to be on, career and so forth. So found my way to this monastery and had a life-changing experience there. So the book I wrote, Beyond Perception, begins with that story, and then it goes on to describe my perspective on um, and what I would call a new spirituality, a spirituality that isn't uh, formed by religion, it isn't mm-hmm. dogma yet. <laughs> it's still I, I like does, to think of it as fresh and new. And How does th- something turn into dogma? Dogma, I've heard that um, word on like a license plate, my karma ran over my dogma. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> uh, yeah, great question. So um, you know I guess at this point we're talking a a little bit about religion Mm -hmm. Um, certainly my introduction to what I what I call spirituality and in the book I make a clear distinction between spirituality and religion my introduction to spirituality came through a recognized religious institution in Asia which is Buddhism and in the Asian country that I lived in Sri Lanka Buddhism there now and then looks a lot or could look a lot like traditional Catholicism here in this country. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of ritual. There's a lot of what I would call superstition. But as a foreigner visiting there in the 70s, and particularly because I wasn't seeking religion, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: I was able to see the practice of meditation as a very effective tool for self-awareness. And so my experience is that what you know t- great teachers uh, the buddha is one of them in my mind <laughs> uh, jesus mm-hmm. christ is another great teacher in my mind those great teachers had an experience that showed them something very different than our ordinary human reality and they taught about their experience which is difficult to do because it's a different perspective and that's something we'll talk about today but Inevitably their teaching gets formulated into, you know, a set of rules or a set of beliefs that you are supposed to adhere to. And that in my judgment was never their intention to create. And so that becomes dogma. Dogma is this is how you have to believe if you want to be right. What Buddha and Jesus, you know, really taught was that there isn't a right and wrong, which is a difficult concept for us to wrap our heads around <laughs> but that'll be something that we'll explore today is how we frame everything in our world through this thinking mind as according to certain values so mm. right wrong is a is a clear example of that and these teachers that taught awakening or in the case of the Buddha the word enlightenment is often used were are really presenting a reality that's not framed according to absolute values like right and wrong. It has nothing to do with that. So dogma, of course, is a departure <laughs> mm-hmm. from from what they were teaching. It's our way of trying to understand what they were teaching, but inevitably we corrupt it yeah. and we turn it into religion. And the rest is history, right? And the rest is history, <laughs> exactly. And then here we are today. <laughs> and here we are today. And you have a book. You know, the danger of teaching, the risk of teaching this subject matter and of course the risk of writing a book is that someday that may be turned into a religion or a dogma you know just before we began talking you and I you asked me um, so this is about Buddhism and I said well no not exactly because I'm not comfortable using that word only because it's become a religion in a sense that it's lost in the traditional countries where it's practiced it's often lost the essence just like Christianity here has lost the essence of what Jesus was teaching. But on the other hand, I'm really inspired by what happened to me. It's informed my whole life. It was over 40 years ago now that this happened. And I want other people to consider the possibility of what I've learned and how this practice of meditation has changed my life. So writing a book is a way to do that. Tony had asked me to do, uh, maybe pick a few parts of the book to read out loud, mm-hmm. and this might be a good moment to do that. Please. Does yes. that sound, sound good? Yeah. So what I'm going to do is read from the introduction. This will be short, but it might give you some idea of where this book is going. Okay. <laughs> so this is from the uh, introduction, the section called The Problem. It could be argued that the whole thrust of human civilization, the main point of all the progress that we've achieved in our 200,000 years on Earth, is to better our chances of survival. Indeed, this seems to be the purpose of life and the primary objective of all living things. Yet, after all this time and enormous effort, we find our survival threatened in more ways than we ever could have imagined. Our attempts to make life safer and more certain all seem to produce unintended side effects that create newer and bigger threats. Even the most ardent believers in material progress have to admit that our efforts to resolve our insecurity have only made the problem worse. Looking honestly at our predicament, we might do well to stop in our tracks and rethink our entire approach. A situation like this, where every effort we make to save ourselves seems to put us in greater danger, demands that we at least stop doing what we are doing until we better understand our dilemma. The aim of this book is to get us to do just that, and only that. If we can simply stop for a moment and not try to do anything, we may get a glimpse of the problem as it is, and that would change everything. and I'm gonna skip ahead to um, another short section here. This book is not going to offer some miracle cure, be cheerfully optimistic, nor predict an apocalypse. It will merely suggest that each of the unthinkable threats facing us today stem from one root cause, and the purpose of all these seemingly malignant obstacles being thrown in our way is to urge us to find that cause. An old proverb goes something like this, It's not the mountain ahead that wears you down, but the grain of sand in your shoe. If we are honest with ourselves right now, the mountains ahead of us do seem impossible to cross, and our chances of making it through the next period of human history make even the optimists among us hesitate. Yet the very problem may be that we are focusing on the mountains ahead instead of looking in our own shoe. While the immediacy of our problems begs for action, it may be wiser now to take a moment to look for the real source of our discomfort and anxiety. Until we understand what's causing us to feel afraid and dissatisfied, despite our unprecedented material abundance and technical capacity, we may never find a lasting solution. I suggest that the grain of sand in our shoe is simply that we seem to lack the capacity for contentment. While our brains have a remarkable ability to process information, and this enables us to manipulate the world around us in astounding ways, few of us are ever satisfied with life. Indeed, it seems that the more we have, the more we want. We're caught in a perpetually repeating cycle, chasing one thing after another, only to find that this new thing does not solve our problem either. The simple common ingredient Underlying each one of these impossible situations lies in our basic human nature. Our primary way of approaching the world is from a place of scarcity and defensiveness. These basic impulses were programmed into us long ago when we had to defend ourselves against saber-toothed tigers and our life was full of immediate danger and uncertainty. But now, ironically, instead of protecting us, our conditioned reflexes are making the world increasingly unstable and unsafe for us to live in. These involuntary defenses are no longer serving us and have themselves become the source of the problem. Yet even if we know that our habit of defending ourselves is hurting us, we do not seem to be able to stop ourselves from reacting to the world around us out of fear.
0: So, good morning, Miles. Good morning, (laughs) Tonio. took me a while to get here. (laughs) I had one of those... Really interesting mornings. Early this morning, even before I woke up, I had this thought about my truck not starting this morning wow. or something going wrong. Wow! But then my rational mind came in and said, but there's no reason for that to happen. <laughs> I haven't had any problems like that in many years. But that thought nagged at me. And then as I was getting up and getting ready to leave, I was thinking, I should go down just check my truck <laughs> which of course I didn't because again my rational mind went nah it's okay
1: <laughs> wow
0: and then when I went down there I discovered that I'd left the key on halfway in the truck for the last few days so the battery was completely dead wow and then on my way here there was a lot of road work and unusually long delay, so I got to experience the discomfort in my body of sitting, waiting for about 10 minutes at one spot, while two processions of cars came through in the opposite direction. I'm thinking, somebody's, you know, leaving us behind. (laughs) So I got to experience the discontent and discomfort of circumstances.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And a great follow-up to that is that I also had a uh, a little bit of stress getting here today Uh, I left about 10 minutes later than I wanted to and then I got behind a big truck and I have the luxury in my life of not having too many scheduled appointments I run a homestead and retreat center and I tend to be able to make my own schedule and so you know it's always a little stressful for me when I have to be somewhere on time and I'm thinking I'm on the air at 9 o'clock, i got to be there. (laughs) And and so it was so lovely when I got here and they said, oh, Tony is not here yet, he'll be arriving shortly and then everything seemed to just relax. And um, what's so interesting, so I'm on my way in and I'm feeling this tension. And, you know, of course, like you said, feeling it in my body, feeling it in my head. And the practice, one of the things that we'll talk about today is how do you neutralize that? Because... If you're paying attention, all of us, you'll notice that that kind of stress, that kind of tension comes in all the time, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it doesn't take much to trigger it. Now, you know, this morning you and I both had fairly obvious reasons to feel that tension. But even when there isn't an obvious reason, you know, I invite you listeners to notice that, that even when there's no apparent cause, our default setting seems to be stress. Our default setting seems to be one of my teachers called it low-level panic
0: anxiety anxiety. We live in the age of anxiety. yeah, well,
2: I, I would argue that that it's actually part of the human condition. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk about that more, but certainly our age and and the reading I just did from the book was partly aimed at that. our age or the time that we live in now, seems to have increased or in some way, the effect of our our technology, everything we do, the intention of it, right? You could argue the intention of all of our our progress, all of our technology, (laughs) is to make our lives easier, to make our lives more comfortable. And in some ways it certainly has. We know most of us are not um, struggling to feed ourselves. Some of us are, but quite a few of us are not. But anyway, if you look at the result of our technology, one thing that's happened is that it has not decreased our stress level. We'll talk about that today, but that's an inside job. That's not something that can happen from outside. So back to the car, I'm in the car and I feel the sense of stress. And at the same time, I look around and we're in Northern Vermont and it's peak foliage season and the sun is out. It hasn't seen, you know, yesterday and the day before, were sort of stormy, cloudy, rainy days today. The sun is out and it's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it's stunningly beautiful. And immediately that's where my focus goes. And I realize there's nothing I can do about the situation. I left a little later than I wanted to, not sure exactly how to get to where I'm going, and I'm behind a slow truck, and I'm supposed to be on the air at nine o'clock. So what? I've I've done everything I can do. I'm gonna drive at a safe speed, but I'm gonna stay focused. And meanwhile, I'm gonna enjoy my trip. And once I settled into that, I noticed immediately my body relaxed and I could enjoy the travel.
0: That's great. I, on the other hand, <laughs> I called my father in a pinch and had him drive over to pick me up. And even though I realized there's nothing I could do, I might as well just relax and, you know, settle in and enjoy the ride. I still felt that tension in my mm. body. There was no escaping the experience of the tension and in mounting anxiety, mm. even though there was nothing I could do. Yeah. And in my experience, my, my history is actually parallels yours in many ways. I started my formal meditation training in 1976 huh. at the age of 18. Huh. So um, you started yours in Sri Lanka at the age of 19 in 1976. That's right. And I did a lot of intensive meditation Very early in my life, and then later on, I found that whenever there were stressful things going on, if I was feeling emotionally miserable or just overwhelmed by things, those would be the times when I would sit
2: Hmm.
0: and just sink into myself, into Hmm. just into being present with what's going on, Hmm. and that just that the act of doing that itself would allow things to dissolve. And it's a mysterious process, because it doesn't follow any rational process, really. There's no effort to it. It's actually the opposite of effort. Hmm. So, it's interesting how we relate to the world around us. And your suggestion of approaching, you know, starting off the show by talking about the issue of human nature... I thought it was a good one mm,
2: mm. and well l- let me just take off on what you just said tonio so okay. for this to be useful to people i'm I'm happy to talk about stories and theories, and that can be very helpful, but you know what I teach meditation, and what most people want to know is what do I do how you know how can i so my book is called um, Subtitled <laughs> finding contentment in a disillusioned world. And so people come to me and go, how, how do I find contentment? You know? So here's something to consider. The normal way that we try to find contentment, the normal way that we try to become happy, is to get something or do something, become something. You know, Just think about that for a moment and you'll realize that at every moment, if you're aware, paying attention to what's going on in your mind, you're trying to get somewhere or be something, or get something. Like you and I this morning trying to get to GDR (laughs) by 9 o'clock. You know, we had a very particular focus this morning. But at every moment, our mind has a focus. And the focus is, what do I need to get to be happy? What do I need to be to be happy? And if you pay attention to it, you'll see that it's always what I call leaning forward. The mind is always focused on what do I need now, and how can I get it? You know, when I read the introduction to the book, the concept that we live in a world of lack. It's not a world of lack. You know, one really interesting thing about living in our culture, the, the culture of United States of America in 2014, is that if there was ever a place on planet Earth, in the whole history of humanity, as far as I'm concerned, where there was little lack, it's us now. Think about it. I, I think most of the listeners would be able to see that most of us can get whatever we need whenever we need it today with the advent of internet shopping it's phenomenal I go online I find something I need I punch in my credit card and within a few days usually it arrives at my doorstep that's just unbelievable
0: and we don't even have to interact with anybody to do (laughs) it that's right
2: so the the point is that we're not lacking, and yet watch your mind, pay attention to your your thoughts, and you'll see that they're all based on the idea of lack, that there's something I don't have yet. And when I get that thing or when I become that thing, then I'll be happy. So just pay attention to that. Notice that. it's a It's one of the programs. We'll talk about that concept of the mind being programmed like a computer's programmed. <laughs> And it's one of the programs that's fundamental to humanity. As far as I can tell, it's been with us ever since we've been conscious. And the consequence of that is that we're never able to be satisfied with what we have. What I read in the introduction to my book is that the grain of sand in in our shoe, as I'm calling it, is that we lack the capacity for contentment. And that's a very profound thought, if you think about it. It's very simple. It may or may not be true, and I'm not suggesting it is, but I'd invite you to think about it. If we lack the capacity for contentment, if if we don't know how to be content, we don't our programming, as I would say, our mental programming precludes the experience of contentment. We're not able to be satisfied with what we have because the programming is always what's next. I call it the the grass is greener phenomena.
0: And when you say contentment with what we have that also includes contentment with what is, the circumstances that are around us. Not just what we have, but what actually is occurring in each moment.
2: Yeah, that's, that's, thanks for clarifying that.
0: And that reminds me, Byron Katie, who is a, a mutual inspiration for both of us, she has a book titled Loving What Is, mm. and I just love her approach because it's so clear Mm. And this whole thing about finding contentment, or as she would say, being able to love whatever is happening in each moment. Mm. And that can be very challenging because she gives examples of being diagnosed with cancer and finding the space within herself to love that experience as well. Mm. And that can be very, very challenging. So most of us feel like victims of circumstance.
2: Yeah, so let's talk about that for a minute. When I hear that and I think when some of my students hear that and I'm guessing some of the listeners here will make this same connection, what the thought that goes through my mind is that's make believe, that's fantasy. You know, I I can pretend that I'm happy with what it is. I can I can look spiritual. I can look like I'm the kind of person that's always happy with what is
0: and i'm not phased by and i yeah
2: nothing phases me i'm i'm a meditation teacher i'm saying that tongue-in-cheek the listeners need to know that so when you hear that concept of you know let's let's love what is let's be let's accept what is and then you throw in something like cancer most of us we have a inner voice that says you know not true Impossible. You know, these guys are just off in la-la land. So let's look at it very practically. What we're up against, all of us, humanity, people, in my judgment, is that you and I, what we have is a mind, a programmed mind, that always believes that there's something better that we don't have, that we need. That's the default. And if that's so, then... We always are restless. We always are anxious.
0: And that could be wanting to have more money in our life, better life circumstances, or it could be better health, like if we're faced with health crises or family issues, wanting to change those things, somehow believing that we can't, that there's this lack of ability to cope with this crisis. That's right. That we're a victim and outer circumstances have control over us.
2: That's right. So that's a really good description of the default condition of our thoughts, the default program. I call it a program. And just notice it. And notice that the most important thing you can do to, let's say, free yourself from that is to pay attention to it. And that's what, we'll get into this later, but that's what the practice of, of what I call direct awareness meditation does is it just all, all it's helping us do is pay attention to the program
0: so you're implying that this is just simple awareness
2: exactly
0: but the big question because a lot of people out there who m- maybe still feel victimized by things what good is simple awareness and the way you're talking about it certainly doesn't feel simple to me, people may be saying. So how can, quote-unquote, simple awareness be so simple? Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right, so if I get your question, um, I think we uh, an important distinction here is between simple and easy. Right. So when I say simple, I don't mean easy. But it's an important distinction because what our mind does, our thinking mind, and I think most people can relate to this, is it tends to make things very complex. And in the complexity is where the impossibility is. You know, if it's that complex, I'm never going to get it. So the the concept of spiritual practice, and as I teach more and more, I find that the key is to keep it very, very simple. So that you don't, it's not something you have to figure out. And the, the the incredible thing about awareness, just paying attention, just seeing something, is that when you become aware of a story in your life, and by a story I mean a, a repetitive thought pattern, and the one of the key stories is the one you just identified, which is I'm a victim. It can be as extreme as the whole world is out to get me, or there's the conspiracy theory model is that this group of people is out to get me. Um, or it can be as sort of vague and subtle as that you know, things don't go my way. I'm on the road to GDR this morning. I had to rush to get out the door. I was ten minutes late, but I thought I could probably make it, and then I get behind a big truck, you know, or
0: I was born under a bad star
2: or I, yeah, i just <laughs> i just have I just have bad luck, you know exactly. bad bad things happen to me. So what I invite you to do is just notice the story, and the trick here is to. Um, not be mesmerized by the content. The content will keep changing. There'll always be another villain. There'll always be uh, some power that's greater than you, that doesn't have your best interest in mind, that's keeping you oppressed, that's out to get you. And if you watch the storyline, you'll see that's almost always true. Well, All of us have that. It's kind of a default setup. And that's feeding into that program it keeps that program going and it keeps it alive and that program keeps us unhappy of course if 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 the world around you if life itself is out to get you or somehow is throwing obstacles in your way for no apparent reason then there's you're not going to be happy ever
0: it puts you in a state of plugging into that old instinctual survival mode
2: exactly yeah at some point here, I'm going to bring in the concept of ego because I find it really helpful to, to to name it as that. And so, you know, you could call it lots of different things, but the word ego implies the sense of separate self. And we'll talk more about that. Mm-hmm. That ego sense of separate self depends on me being a victim. It's rooted in the definition of it is that I'm alone here. I have to take care of myself. Nobody else cares about me, really. And
0: It could also be the opposite. It could also be I'm the person who is more powerful than everybody else, but it's based on the same polarity, the same dynamic of victim-perpetrator kind of thing.
2: Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I always like to say that some of us see the problem as other people. And some of us see the problem as ourselves. So there's a there's a way that we you know some of us when there's a problem we blame ourselves, and some of us when there's a problem we blame other people. Um, so it can and both of those are the same, right. two sides of the and same. And often point.
0: we do a combination of the two.
2: Yeah, but since you brought up this concept of uh, someone, one of us, or any one of us at any given time, feeling more powerful, feeling more right, or more you know in charge, having more power and control. Notice this. This is really profound. Behind every person or institution that has power and that uses that power to control, dominate, oppress, hurt other people, those people, that institution, and this is the kicker, sees themselves as a victim.
0: Or potential victim.
2: Or potential victim. It's fear. fear. It's it's coming fear. from fear. It's coming from fear. Yeah. And, it, and watch it. It'll blow your mind. Mm-hmm. You know, Look at our country, United States, the most powerful nation, arguably, I think, today on the planet. And when you see our country acting in ways that I don't feel comfortable with personally, initiating violence against other peoples, other countries, always the argument is, we're the victim. So watch that. Notice it. It's, it's fascinating, and it's really important to see because you may not be able to change those people's attitude toward themselves. If they continue to see themselves as a victim, even though it, it's apparent that they have more power, more resources, more wealth, let's say, than anybody else, there's nothing we can, I can do about that. But what I can do is challenge that notion inside myself, and that's where it has to begin. So let's get back to contentment. How do we, as you said, using the words of Byron Katie, how do we love what is? Especially when it's not what we chose, or what we thought we chose. You know, it's not something we wanted. I didn't want to get stuck behind a truck today. You didn't want to have your battery run down and then find yourself sitting in traffic. How do we love that situation? And it's a really important question because if we just stop there and saying, well, yeah, you just have to love it.
0: And love love may not be the right term. I think it'd be easier for people to understand the term, how can we fully accept acceptance. this situation? Yeah. And love is a very tricky word. <laughs>
2: yes, it is.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot like the word God.
2: It it's, is.
0: So, you know, acceptance. How can we fully accept the situation relax
2: into it yeah. let
0: go into this situation as it is yeah
2: and now we're getting and I appreciate you framing it that way cuz I think now we're getting into something practical so that's exactly it is you know what happened to me this morning is i realized at some point i'm not going to be able to change this i knew i couldn't get around the truck there was two cars in front of me <laughs> and and i was on route route 14 most of the way coming down from Standard, from Hardwick. I'm not going to get around that truck, ever. It's not going to happen. And the truck's probably going to Plainfield or Montpelier, just where I'm going. So that's when it's helpful to relax, when you realize you've done what you can do, and now any further worry or any further anxiety or tension is only going to make it worse. And that's where some self-discipline and self-awareness can really be useful, is I've done what I can do, now how about I just soften and enjoy the ride? And trust, the process. And, you know, what's beautiful is that the one thing that helped me do that coming in today was realizing I don't know what I'm going to find when I get to GDR. That's really true. I mean, I fully expected that you'd be waiting for me because we had planned to meet 15 minutes before the show and that my biggest concern was that you'd be worried or anxious, because I was late for our appointment, and I didn't want to upset you. You know, you're the, kind enough to invite me in here and host this program. And so, lo and behold, I get here, and Antonio's not here. And I think, well, that that's just it. What a wonderful
0: complexity of stories. Yeah. <laughs> I had this exact same kind of thing going on in my mind, and it never even occurred to me that there could be unusual circumstances on your end. Yeah. And I that's a lot of what goes on in this world is that we get caught up in our own story our own experience of circumstances and our awareness is imploded in that story to the complete exclusion of all other possibilities and that causes a lot of problems out there because we then make assumptions based upon well this is what's true for me And because it's the only thing I'm aware of, I'm not allowing any space for this vast range of other possibilities Mm. that could be happening. That's right. And I make a lot of assumptions. Even with the best of intentions of trying to be as aware of of the range of possibilities as possible, my conscious mind is only usually able to be aware of very little (laughs) at at any particular moment. That's
2: right. So what you know the a practical way to undo that, let's say, so that that you know what you're describing is what our minds do is we focus on what we think is real, what we think is true. Tony's waiting for me in the studio, and he's upset because I'm late. I think that's real. It turned out not to be real, and the way and the way for me to undo that before I know what's real or not is to simply remind myself, and this is always true about the future. It's always true about the future. I don't know. And it turns out that's one of the hardest things for us to admit. So just check that out for yourself right now, listeners. Can you realize that wherever you are in time right now, You don't know what's going to happen next. You have an idea, maybe. You have a plan. That's okay. I had a plan to come down here. Of course, we wouldn't be able to do this show without a plan. But the reality is I don't know what's going to happen. And when you can allow that, I don't know, something beautiful happens, which is that the whole tension relaxes. Or it can. It can.
0: Yeah. And the same thing if we have a story running in our mind about what's unfolding or about to unfold. We can ask ourselves, "Is that really true?" Yeah, and we may initially go, "Yeah, of course it's true," but then we could take the question a step further and say, "Can I really be sure that that's true? <laughs> <laughs> can I be absolutely certain that that's true?" And then you start thinking and I go, "Well, I don't know."
2: Yeah. So we we should just give a little credit here to to the work of Byron Katie. So what Tonio's referring to is. Um, and I'll just mention her name once more, a a teacher that both of us have resonated with over the years named Byron Katie. And she came up with a very simple formula for undoing the anxiety, isn't it? The stress. And it's to question the story. And um, Antonio just kind of laid out the questions that she encourages us to ask. Actually,
0: just one of them. There's a... There's a s- she calls it the four questions, four questions. but it's, it's actually a little more elaborate sure. than that, because sure. she does these turnarounds and things. Yeah. But you don't necessarily have to go through that whole process. If you just ask the simple question is, is this really true? Or can you really be certain That's right. if this
2: is really true? Yeah.
0: That can start the unraveling process yeah. of those
2: stories. That's right. Yeah, yeah. just consider the possibility. <laughs> and this is a kicker. This will kind of hurt a little bit, that you might be wrong.
0: Right. (laughs) I love that a couple of years ago, I played a talk by this woman who wrote a book about being wrong. Hmm. And she gave a talk. Hmm. And it was all about the ways that we are wrong. Hmm. And the concept was absolutely brilliant, and I loved it, because I consider the foundation of my show to be this notion that we don't know. Yeah. The ultimate answer to pretty much every question is I don't know. I don't know. But being able to come to that answer is incredibly powerful if we can allow the space for that. And that's a very, you know, for somebody who's subject to anxiety and for a species, that's subject to the sense of anxiety and lack and always trying to gain control. Mm. The answer, I don't know, doesn't seem to help at all on the face of it.
2: That's right. Another way to say that is that's one of the hardest places for us to land. It's one of the hardest conclusions for us to come to. So, you know, just invite you again, anyone listening here, to consider that it's, there's some things you can't know, and it's okay. You None of us, no human being, can know what's going to happen next. Just consider that. And it may not be the answer you were looking for. <laughs> Probably wasn't.
0: <laughs> but life is like that.
2: Life is like that. Yeah. Um, before we lose that thread, I want to come back to the concept of contentment and the question, how do you accept what is? So one way is to question your story. Another way, and this is something I've found, is fairly accessible to most of us, and there's a little discipline here. It's not a heavy, like, I got to do this, got to do this, but there's a little bit of effort and discipline. First, notice when you're anxious. Notice the anxiety. And as we've been saying so far, if you pay attention any given moment, you're probably going to notice. And a good way to notice that, by the way, is, is um, feel it in your body because where the anxiety, where the tension arises and abides and is almost always uh, present is somewhere in in the body. We hold the body tense. So begin to notice, oh, I'm I'm tight. What is it, you know, I'm anxious. And in that moment that you notice that, there may be circumstances like we've been describing this morning, you know, getting stuck in traffic or having car problems and being late for an appointment, especially when you're, you know, supposed to be on the air is a big deal. So, obviously, that would justify the anxiety. But when you notice that something's causing it, what I invite you to do is look around you, just pause for a second like I did in the car this morning, and look around you and notice something, one thing that's going right, one thing that you can appreciate. Because the antidote to lack the antidote to fear, the antidote to this anxiety we're talking about, that I, I, I'm not enough, I don't have enough, I gotta get something else, is gratitude. And I'm not talking about convincing yourself that you're okay. You could work at it from that angle, but I personally don't think that's gonna work. What I am talking about is that there's always something in your immediate experience, very real, very direct, that's okay that you can accept that's going well. And just as an example for me this morning, I'm pulling out of my driveway and I'm thinking, wow, I'm 10 minutes you know, later than I wanted to be. You know, not good, how did I manage that? And then I look up in this maple tree, the sun's hitting it, it's full orange, red color. I hadn't noticed it before, it's, you know, it's kind of at the end of my driveway. And immediately I'm in gratitude. I'm realizing, now that's beautiful and I can appreciate that. And when there's one thing that you can appreciate, it will, it will begin to crack the story. It'll begin to let a little light into the darkness of, you know, I'm never enough, it's not enough, it's not good, something's wrong here. Just find one thing that's right and you can do that. That's very practical and realistic. It's not, it's not hocus-pocus and it's not make-believe. Just find one thing that, just listeners, I invite you right at this moment, just notice one thing in your surroundings that, that's okay. That you, maybe you're warm, that's good. Maybe you're fed, that's good. Maybe you um, are with somebody that you like their company. Just notice one thing in your environment now that's working for you. And just focus on that. That's no big deal. And See what happens. Just see how it alters your state of being. It puts a little smile on your face and it allows your body to soften.
0: And you can do that in so many ways. It's like stepping back from the immediacy of the situation that you are facing. You can even reflect back, well, actually my life is pretty good. This moment is not going the way I wanted it to. And the outcome of this particular situation may not work out Mm. you know this may be a momentary disaster but it's just a one thing in a much broader thing so maybe maybe it's not the end of the world because isn't that interesting how when we're in a situation that's not working out that we think is going to fail the mind my mind tends to view it as this is it.
2: Yeah, everything. Everything.
0: It's the end of the world. <laughs> everything has gone to... That's right. Th- that word that you can't use on the air. Yeah. But actually, it's just one thing, and this too shall pass.
2: Yep. Yep. Yeah, so that's it. That's a part of the mind's programming, is that when there's discomfort, when there's pain, when there's something going wrong, the mind makes it into a permanent situation. Just notice... This is a self-awareness piece that you can begin to notice how your mind makes it into this is never going to change.
0: And then if you can think of this, you could ask,
2: is that really true? Is that true?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Life is a fascinating thing. Every opportunity is like an opportunity to learn and to grow mm. Mm. from everything that occurs.
2: Sure. And and just to put that into very simple terms, what we're talking about now is just shifting, changing the channel of your mind. Let's think of it like that. So appreciating something, finding something in your immediate experience that you can be grateful for, that you like, just one thing that's okay, changes the channel.
0: What a beautiful metaphor. It's like on channel two is the situation that's obviously not working out to my satisfaction, but Mm. then change it over to channel three And there's this beautiful vision of nature and everything. And we respond emotionally to everything in our life. And the changing of a channel triggers the direction of our emotions, of what we feel. Perhaps you could talk about how our feelings are our most direct anchor to
2: this present moment. Sure. So, you know, what I'm about is practical tools. The concept of tools is sometimes hard for people when it comes to something as personal and intimate as spirituality, but it's what I'd like to distinguish between is tools and rules. So rules are things to believe in, and that's how religion has been formed. I talked about that earlier on the show. And what I'm talking about is not rules, not ways to believe, not things that are right or wrong, but tools that you can employ, things that you can use. And my belief is that we need, most of us need some tools to learn, to grow, to work on ourselves, to become happy, that there's things that can help us. So in my life, there's been one of the most powerful tools has been this tool of meditation, which we can talk about more what that actually is. But it's only a tool. It's a vehicle. It's a way to diffuse the programming that keeps me unhappy. And remind me again, the question that you just asked.
0: It was about, um, how our emotional experience
2: connects us to the present. Thanks. Okay. So what the reason I'm talking about tools is because they're practical. That's what I like about them. So think, think hammer, think computer. Um, most people don't use a hammer. Think computer, think car. Think... Think language. Language. Language is a tool. Words. Mm-hmm. Okay? These are, these are tools that we employ for, for a particular purpose. We use tools all the time. So what we're talking about now is a tool for happiness. What a concept. <laughs> that happiness doesn't just land, although it can, but more importantly happiness is not something that you have to earn or gain or you know strive for that there's a it's more about um uncovering it realizing it
0: and you might have to work toward it particularly if you've lived a life where you did not have much happiness where you didn't have happiness modeled for you
2: sure and that's I think, arguably true for all of us. Or know? at
0: least, or many of us. Many I don't know about us. all of us, yeah.
2: but sure. many of us. Sure. For me,
0: many I can us. say, but I can't speak for anybody sure, else.
2: Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, so, so we're talking about a tool, and the aim of the tool is becoming more content, becoming more happy. Just keep it very simple. I think those are things... We're finding peace. Finding peace, Within ourselves. Within ourselves. And
0: with the world around us.
2: And within if if we find it within ourselves, there's a good chance that it will contribute to peace in the world around us. So you're asking, you know, how do we work with emotions? What do we do with our emotions? What are they what function do they serve and how do we relate to them? Here's an interesting thing about emotions is that we tend to be intimidated by them, we tend to be overwhelmed by them, they tend to take us over, they tend to be out of our control, they tend to be mysterious in that they just arrive and depart, (laughs) and they can really um, have a huge impact on our experience. So if you look at how we've dealt with emotions as a people, as a culture, my judgment is not well. We tend to avoid, deny, or suppress, or override, or numb them. So, for example, we don't have a language very much to talk about our emotions. It's not easy for us to hear about other people's emotions, emotional experience. What we, most of us, tend to do with our own uncomfortable emotions is numb or distract. And in our culture now, we have infinite ways to do that, to keep ourselves stimulated or distracted or entertained. Or medicated. Or medicated and some of that of course is is self medication some of it might be prescribed medication and i'm not putting a value judgment on that but i think it's important to identify that that's the way that our culture approaches dealing with emotions is to suppress them
0: and that those are tools that are used in these ways and i think what you're offering are tools that we can use more deliberately to create A different outcome.
2: Exactly. So, yeah, that's a good distinction. Medication, and I would include by that drugs and alcohol that we do without the prescription of a doctor, (laughs) Uh, they are tools and they do work to free us from the uncomfortable emotions in the moment. The problem with them is that they're band aid. They, They only address the symptoms, they don't address the cause, and the result of that is that the emotions come back. And they usually come back stronger. And the problem with using a substance, any substance, any medication, any drug, any alcohol, is that we need more and more and more. And that's the root of a lot of our addictive behavior. So just worth mentioning that. So what's another way, what's another tool to work with emotions, to process emotions? And The tool of awareness, I'm going to use awareness and meditation kind of interchangeably. And at some point this morning we can define what I mean by meditation. But awareness, practice of meditation is practicing awareness. Just being, noticing what is. You will notice your emotions. You'll be more aware of them. And the benefit of that is that once you're more aware of your emotions, you can make some choices. And one of the things that I invite you to notice is how... Emotions get fed by stories. Emotions get fed by the drama in our lives. And when you're feeling an emotion, particularly an uncomfortable emotion, but it could be a happy, comfortable emotion, it's always connected to a story. And what we tend to do unconsciously is feed the story. We focus on the story. When you focus on it, you feed it. And when we feed the story, we feed the emotion. And we get caught. That's why emotions become this firestorm inside of us, that we finally only contain by drowning ourselves in alcohol or drugs or medication or some other addictive behavior. So the way of meditation, the way of awareness is to notice the story. And just as we've been discussing this morning, question the story, diffuse the story. What if it's not true? How do I know it's true? What if I'm wrong? I don't know. The practice of meditation is, in in a nutshell, is really the practice of letting go of the story, always. Because the story is our interpretation, and it's not what's actually happening. And as you separate the story from the emotion, which is very hard to do. They they want to be together, <laughs> and separating them is is a challenge. But what, as you learn to do that, and that's what the practice of meditation can teach, The emotion subsides. You know, they come and go. Emotions are part of our human experience, but they're not overwhelming. They don't consume us because we're not feeding them.
0: If we can allow them to subside, as you say. Yeah. Often it does feel that they're overwhelming us. Right. And bringing awareness to our emotional and psychological state doesn't always immediately cause the emotions to dissipate. Sometimes it takes a period of time. It's like there's this inertia. And sometimes you just have to stay in that space of awareness long enough, patiently enough, without this agenda to change the circumstances. Because that's another thing about meditation and awareness is being able to let go of this notion of having an agenda that we're sitting in meditation to achieve a certain goal, like, I'm feeling miserable or overwhelmed right now, and I'm sitting down expecting to fix this uncomfortable situation that I am, so I'm not suffering anymore. And that's very much like using alcohol or another substance to make ourselves feel more comfortable.
2: Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And that may be why meditation is so difficult for people, because there isn't usually an immediate result, you know, the way there can be with substances. with, And I think
0: that's why they use the term practice, practice. With it because yep. you have to practice it. Yep. <laughs> um, there's this joke about practicing medicine. You know, doctors practice medicine until they get it right. Until they get it right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I have a great story about that. Just to add a little reality and, and lightness to this discussion. So when I returned from Sri Lanka, I was 19, I was halfway through college, and my whole life took a U-turn, essentially. I really understood then that I wanted to, meditation was my medicine. I think of it as my medicine, my way to become happy, healthy. And I knew that I was going to pursue it no matter what. And my father had a lot of difficulty. My whole family did, but I think my father most really struggled with what I was doing with my life, because I was supposed to be, I was smart, I was in a good college, and I was being kind of urged to go in the direction of medicine or law, you know, the big money makers. (laughs) And uh, make
0: your parents proud,
2: make your parents proud. So I was not making my father proud at that point. He, He was really distraught, had no Clue what I was up to or what you know had just didn't it was so out of context in the mid seventies he just couldn't begin to relate to what I was going I dropped out essentially you know got out of college um, pursued what now have become my passions organic organic farming homesteading and uh, and meditation practice and uh, at some point he overheard me talking to my sister saying that I had a meditation practice and he got all excited because he thought of practice just the way you did as a medical practice, and he thought that meant that I was making money at it. (laughs) And so he said, how much are you making? And I said, Dad, I'm not making anything. It's a a meditation practice. And he just, it it was a very funny moment, because that was the only context that he had for the word practice. Um, And I'm glad you brought that word into this, because... It is a practice, and I can. I'm a. I'm a great example of this. So it's been not quite forty years, um, but a big chunk of my life. Um, you know, way way more than half my life, I've been doing this, and um, I do it every morning. Uh, I meditate, and and then sometimes again during the day, um, I consider it like I t- talk to people about it now. It's like brushing my teeth. You know, if I don't do it. I can, you know, when you don't brush your teeth, you kind of feel that gritty stuff on your teeth, and you think, hmm, something, I gotta go brush my teeth. So it, for me, it's like meditation. Meditation is like that. If I don't sit, I think, hmm, I'm not quite here as much as I, I know I can be or have been. And it's just a practice. And the thing that can happen with meditation for people that are interested in trying it or people that are already doing it is that in the beginning, it is hard it's really hard to, to, to get yourself to sit still, to get the body to settle, and then what, even when you get the body to settle and you've carved out a little bit of time, you know, getting the mind to relax and settle down is can be enormously challenging. I do recommend for listeners interested in meditation, certainly you can read about it, you can hear about it and that's all good and you can try it on your own and that's good, but it's, really beneficial to get with a group of people, usually with a teacher who's holding that space, and do it, practice it in an intensive form, a, a, what we call intensive retreat. That will get you started. I did it for a month in a monastery, having never sat, meditated for even a minute. I just threw myself into this monastery in Sri Lanka for a month, and it was by far, I think, the most difficult thing that I've ever done. Every day I wanted to leave. It was not comfortable but I was determined because I didn't think I had any other options in terms of finding meaning and trying to f- get at peace with myself so the point is that when you try it it will be difficult and if you persist if you stay with it if you make it a practice and don't evaluate how you're doing so with students that come to my retreats when I end the retreats i usually say go home if you want to try this try it you know, it's helpful to maybe have a time when you sit every day. Like for me, it's when I get up in the morning. Before I usually have a conversation or listen to the news or anything, I try to sit when my mind is still a little bit quiet but awake. And sit for a short period of time. Five minutes is fine in the beginning. But discipline yourself to stay still for that five minutes. And when that five minutes isn't enough, when you're starting to crave more stillness, more quiet moment, then add to the five minutes.
0: And I'm speaking with Miles Schertz here on the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Miles runs a retreat center in Stannard, Vermont, up in the Northeast Kingdom called Sky Meadow Retreat. He's also the author of two books, Conscious Communication and Beyond Perception. And there's a link to Beyond Perception on the WGDR Facebook page, should be right at the top. And <laughs> <laughs> this has been a delicious conversation. Mm-hmm. So it always throws me off when I have to give the station ID and do all that. <laughs> I have Nat brain syndrome. So if I get distracted, I'm like untethered and lost in the universe for a moment. But actually I'm right here.
2: Sure. I'm happy to bring us back. So I'm just giving people some sort of practical information about the practice of meditation and it's while we're talking about that maybe I could just identify what I mean by meditation. Oh, and you could throw
0: the breath in there.
2: Yeah, that's what we'll talk about. So here's what I mean by meditation and this is how I was taught in in the monastery in Sri Lanka. It, it's historically reported to be the fundamental, the basic practice that the Buddha taught to his students, his followers. And it's often in this country known as insight meditation, sometimes called Vipassana. What the word Vipassana is a a Pali word. That was the language that was used at the time of the Buddha in northern India where the Buddha lived and taught. And Vipassana simply means to see things as they are. I love that. It's It's the capacity to see things for what they are. And notice, if you've been listening to this conversation, you can make the connection that our mind immediately translates things from what they are, what they inherently are, the raw experience, into our story, what we think it is, what we... You know how we're going to relate to it and it's that process of translating a raw experience into a story into we try to give it meaning we try to understand it if you just pay attention to your mind for even just a moment you'll see it doing it anyone listening to this program right now you're hearing my words or tonio's words and your mind is translating them into you're arguing with them you're comparing with your own concepts you're doing what the mind does. Which you might
0: be agreeing with, you it, might be or agreeing with, it, with it or
2: disagreeing yeah. with it. And you're ma- but you're for sure making your own story. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's what the mind does. But what's important to realize is that when we do that, or it's really helpful to see how universally we do it all the time. It's the program of the mind. And the consequence is that you lose the raw Data, You lose the raw experience. You are now in a world where your experience has been translated through your thinking mind. And the the kicker here, the real important thing to get is that we can't tell the difference. Right. We mistake our interpretation for reality.
0: And an important thing to realize is that we are not those stories in our mind.
2: Yeah. I mean that that so that's the essence of what the Buddha was trying to get across to us is that our mind is so good at interpreting raw data or so quick at it and making it into a story and if you watch the storyline for a moment in your mind your private storyline I can see your your private storyline by the way. <laughs> Just kidding. If you watch your private storyline, you'll see that it's always making the story of you. So my private storyline is always making the story of Miles. It's embellishing, it's remembering, it's projecting into the future. And Buddha simply said, it's not real. The concept of you is a concept and it's one that's continually being formulated by your thinking mind.
0: And why that's so important is because in the moment that our mind is running these stories, we actually believe with absolute certainty that those stories are real, that they are the reality that exists inside of us and outside of us. Mm -hmm. And the key thing to remember is that that's not really true. Yeah. And that's the hardest. That's 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 actually the hardest thing to be able to see clearly.
2: Yeah, of course it is because it's. I, I call the self the idea of self and use that word ego again. I call it our fundamental addiction, and it's the thing that we are so identified with. Um, that it the the thought of letting it go is is consider this, is, is equal to dying for us, because it's a death of, of who we think we are. So, I don't want to say a lot more about that, because it's the concept is one thing, the experience is something different, but as you get into a practice like meditation, or any spiritual practice that I think that's um, working it will start to unravel the self, the concept of self, simply because you'll see through it, you'll see that it's just a bunch of stories tied together and that there isn't anything real underlying it. And as you start to see that, as the stories themselves start to fall apart, um, it can be frightening, it can be certainly disorienting and sometimes uh, you know, really unsettling. So, and that's another reason we, we talk about meditation as a practice. It's a gradual practice because if, I think if any one of us was thrown into a, a, an experience where our self was gone, um, it would be terrifying. So we, gra- we get used to it. We, we slowly um, adjust ourselves to a, a, a concept of existence. I exist without a personality, without Miles. I exist without the story of Miles. Um, and just to bring that in, 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 into real time, we were talking about drive me, me driving in this morning and being late for my interview with Tonio on the radio. And the story in my head is, you know, something like, oh, I'm going to be late. He's going to be worried or he's going to be upset or it's going to mess up, you know, GDR's morning programming <laughs> or, uh, hi, you know, I always do this. I'm, I never allow myself enough time. What's wrong with me? You know, those are the, those are the stories. What happened when I noticed the leaves and I turned my attention to appreciating something that was actually going on in my experience is that the story just vanished. So, that's a really profound thing because the story itself isn't isn't real, and when we can loosen our grip on the story, we experience this freedom, and that's in that freedom is the contentment. It's all that that's. That's how easy contentment is. Let me rephrase that. That's how simple contentment is.
0: And here's another thing that you can consider. You don't have to completely let go of your story. You could just allow yourself to let go of it for just a moment and just see what that's like. You can always go back to the story. And if you really like that story or want to hold on to that story, you can go back to it just like that. But it's a really wonderful experience to give yourself another option just to try out another experience just for comparison. It's simple as that.
2: That's a really good way to say it. I tell students all the time in meditation, you're not going to lose your story. You're not going to lose your ability to create a story or to think. That's inherent in who you are and it won't go away. What I'm trying to do is give you something to compare it with, something that's different than that. And if you consider it and watch your mind, you'll realize that at the moment, most of us don't have anything that's outside of that. The story is continuous, and we believe in it, and we invest in it. So in meditation, it's a great way to define it. All we're trying to do is have an experience that's outside of that so that you can have something to compare it with, something to experience that's not that. And we have a caller. Good morning. You're
3: Good on the air. Good morning, Tony-o. <laughs> I like the conversation about thinking about things differently. Uh, years ago, Ed and I were driving down to Danby to my daughter's, which is like an hour and a half, an hour and, I don't know, a long, it's a long distance. And we were running late, and we were supposed to be there. And in Rutland, as we turned um, to, you know, to turn in a direction we had to turn, there was the most amazing, exquisite, unbelievable sunset (laughs) that we wouldn't have seen had we been on time (laughs) because we would have been inside. And so it, you know, rather than, because we had been kind of like, oh, God, we're late, they're going to be upset, and then we just, we were transformed. We went, we don't care, (laughs) (laughs)
1: because
3: we have just seen this amazing, amazing sunset that we would not have seen had we we been doing what we expected we were supposed to do. Mm. I thought of that yesterday. I went um, apple picking with my friend Ella and their their daughter, Maya, who's about 21 months now, and uh, we left Montpelier, and it was. Drizzling a little tiny bit, we said we're gonna we're gonna um, focus on it not being raining up in Hardwick, and we went up and we um, picked apples. But it was overcast and gray, but not too cold, and the ground was warm, and we picked apples and had this wonderful time. And Maya taught me a new game of walking in a really really big step, so we almost tip over, and then stopping to see is anybody noticing. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was, and then as we got in the car, it started to rain in Hardwick, <laughs> mm. and we just thought, what a what a perfect day. And you can either go like, oh, God, it's not sunny and I'm upset, Or you can go, oh, nice. So I do think we need to practice going, oh, nice. Yeah. Anyway, I'll hang out. Bye. Thank, Thank you. Thank
0: you. Sounds like she doesn't have much trouble uh, finding joy in her life.
2: Except it's important to just note that this isn't necessarily easy for any of us. But the point is it's possible. You know, it's possible to in the middle of a rainy day when you're going to pick apples, it's possible to find things that are beautiful that are absolutely working. And that's really cool to consider that it's possible.
0: And even when things are looking bad, something wonderful can arise out of it. It's like the the jewel that we can find in the pile of manure. Yeah. yeah. If we're open to digging into the pile.
2: Yeah. So, I realize we're going to be...
0: Yeah, we have about seven or eight minutes.
2: Yeah, so I want to just say one more thing about the practice I'm talking about, the meditation practice. And this wouldn't be the same as instructions. I do recommend that if you're going to try meditation, find a teacher and get some instructions. It's very helpful.
0: And having a community around to support you in the initial stage is really important because if you have an initial experience, even if you have an initial good experience, you have to really follow up on it. And you have to be consistent, at least in the beginning, yeah. till you get a solid taste of it.
2: Yeah, that's it. And, you know, I can tell you from my own experience that once you get a solid taste of it, you want more. So it, it's a nice thing. It, it's something I look forward to. The essence of the practice that I teach is that you sit quietly, you get your back upright and self-supported, but otherwise it doesn't matter what you sit on, a chair, a bench, a cushion there's more to that of course but just relaxing the body in an upright position and then paying attention to the sensation of the body breathing just the physical feeling and i usually encourage people to notice their belly moving in and out because it's something that is fairly physical and obvious so just the physical sensation of the belly rising with the in-breath and the belly falling with the out-breath and that becomes the focus and that's all there is uh, initially to focus on and what's useful about having a focus like that is that it gives your play your mind a place to go to to turn to instead of your thoughts so as you're you know most of us could pay attention to one breath as I just described that some of the listeners might could feel their belly rising and falling and then when you sit in meditation a couple breaths later you're off in a story in a thought so the the practice is simply when you notice yourself thinking in a story Notice that you're thinking, what I call interrupt the thought, which is something that you can do, and you won't fall apart, and bring your attention back to your breathing. So that's the simple practice, and what it does is it cultivates this awareness that we've been talking about, just simply aware that my body's breathing, and then you can expand that awareness into any physical phenomenon around you that's actually happening, and that will... Give you something to compare your reality with, because your reality is usually what you think is going on, and awareness is what's actually happening. My belly's rising, my belly's falling. That's actually going on. Another quick uh, tip here is let your body do the breathing. So most of us, as soon as we focus on our breath, we unconsciously are controlling it. We're trying to regulate it in some way. And this practice, I know in a lot of yoga practices, you are regulating your breath, and that's different. In this practice, we're just letting the body breathe. And it's one of the most beautiful and simple ways that you can practice letting go, is trusting that the body will take a breath, which it will.
0: And if you don't seem to be good at it? In the beginning, don't be concerned about that.
2: Absolutely. No- nobody's good at it, even after many, many years. Uh, Although
0: we, we tend to be obsessed about doing things right.
2: That's right. So this is a practice. Uh, one of the challenging things about meditation practice is there is no way to evaluate how you're doing. It's not something that you master. It's something that will get easier and something that will get more satisfying. I can, I can say those things about it. And something that will become more deeply healing, deeply, deeply relaxing and healing. Those things absolutely happen, but you don't master it. You don't suddenly become, I'm done with this, I've learned it. It's not like that. That's why we call it a practice.
0: At some point it becomes natural.
2: It does, it becomes a habit, a good, what I call a healthy habit, a natural habit. Um, Just before we run out of time, I do wanna mention that at our retreat center in Stannard, up near Hardwick in the Northeast Kingdom, um, we have, uh, among other things, I teach Insight Meditation retreats that are usually a weekend, Friday night to Sunday afternoon, and we have one coming up here in a couple of weeks on October twenty uh, fourth. Thank you. Through the twenty eighth. Twenty fourth through the twenty sixth. Twenty sixth. Yep. So it's the last weekend of the month, and there's still some room left in that retreat. And if anyone's interested, you can look at our website, which is Sky Meadow Retreat. Dot com. Is there a phone number? Our phone number there is 802 533 2505. We're a very small family run retreat center, very unique. Uh, we're not connected to any particular formal. Um, group or organization. We're just a a one single retreat up in the Northeast Kingdom, and it's a beautiful, very um, secluded location at the end of a road, no traffic. So check us out, skymeadowretreat.com.
0: And I really enjoyed reading the book Beyond Perception. Mm. And you cover a lot of territory in your book, Mm. and you write in a very simple, easily accessible language that I greatly appreciate. Mm, mm,
2: thank you. So I
0: highly recommend the book. Mm. And you can find that on your website.
2: That's right. There's a link, link to the book on the skymeadowretreat.com website. You can get it on Amazon. It's a, available as an e-book. And we'll have to have you back again. I'd love to be back. Because we, we
0: kind of only scratched the surface. We did. <laughs> <laughs> and I would also love to get into conscious communication As well at some point.
2: That would be lovely. So uh,
0: lots more to come. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming and joining me.
2: Yep. It's been great. Yeah, it's been really, really good, Tonya. Yeah.
0: You've been listening to the Magical Mystery Tour here on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Our fall pledge drive is coming up. It'll be beginning Monday, October 20th, running through october 27th so think about what this station means to you and start preparing yourself to open up your heart and your wallets to support this local community radio station thank you all so much for tuning in and have a wonderful week and join us again next friday